welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. All aboard for our ultimate destination, Slammer of the Year! At this grand finale special event held at the Boise Depot, the best story slammers from each show of the foregoing Story Story Night flagship and late night seasons laid some serious storytelling track. We broke the season up into two teams in honor of the 150th anniversary of the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad, Team Union Pacific and Team Central Pacific. On this podcast, we hear the stories from Team Central Pacific, plus a special story from Eric Garsvo, a train enthusiast who was part of the reenactment of the hammering of the last spike in Utah this last spring. Each slammer went full steam ahead with a five-minute story on the theme Runaway Train. Hop on board, it's story time. David Lee! Runaway train, out of control. Tonight I'd like to tell you a story about a trip I took last month. Nothing too exotic, I drove over to Portland I used to do that quite frequently, like several times a year, but I haven't done it for the last four years. Why? Because I was afraid to. Why was I afraid? Well, I'll get to that in a second. First of all, you might be wondering, I said I drove, so what does this have to do with runaway train? Well, that gets back to the fear I was telling you about. You see, I've had a history of seizures. And uh, I think my neurologist would agree if I described a seizure, plain and simple, as a runaway brain. Definitely out of control. Certainly one's out of control while in the midst of having a seizure, but that sense of being out of control extends out a bit broader. Uh, And I'll tell you, probably the scariest version of feeling out of control is when you've lost control over something which you thought you had under control. And that's happened to me a couple times on this path. I had my first seizure nine years ago, and at the time, my doctor recommended I immediately get on some anti-seizure meds. I was kind of hesitant at first, but he explained to me, well, you have a 50-50 chance of having another one, and by the way, if you do have another one, you're, you're done driving. That, that was enough of a motivation, so I got on the pills, and I stayed on them faithfully, and I stayed on them for two years, and everything was fine, under control. I even asked the doc's permission to go off them, and he thought that would be okay, and I did. And for the next year, Everything was fine, under control, till St. Patrick's Day, 2014. I was enjoying corned beef and cabbage at a local restaurant when the next thing I knew, I was waking up in an ambulance. I thought I was dreaming when I heard this voice from the darkness saying, have you ever had a seizure before? Do you remember having a seizure in the restaurant? As I came to, I realized where I was, and the voice was one of the paramedics. Anyhow, needless to say, I got back on the meds pretty quick after that and stayed on them faithfully. And again, for the next year or so, they worked. Everything was under control. And then I had another seizure. Uh, Adjusted the meds, and then I was fine for a while. And then I had one more seizure and some further adjustment of the meds. And I'm pleased to say that now I'm almost four years seizure-free. So I think I have that under control. But I've thought that before. The fear kind of lingers on, and life goes on. I've gotten back to most of my normal activities, but I've been kind of afraid of taking road trips. The notion of what if I'm far away from home when something bad happens. But 
It's particularly a drag now because I recently retired and I'd love to be taking road trips now that I have the time. So I decided this is something I had to get over. It's a hill I needed to climb. Uh, and I decided I ought to start with a familiar hill, specifically Blue Mountain, Blue Mountain Meacham Pass over in Oregon. So I planned the trip to Oregon and I also arranged to meet some family when I got there. And I uh, headed out and driving along just fine, came over the, the blues, riding those familiar twists and turns and thinking, yeah, this is, I got this under control, this is great. Headed on into Portland where I met up with my family members. Now like most families, my family has its share of quirks and dynamics. And in the past, sometimes those have ended up in, let's say, moments of volatility. Certainly not something I wanted on this trip, but it, everything had been fine for a while, so I thought, oh, we got this under control. Well, maybe not. Let's just say in the course of the week we had a couple moments. But just like getting over the pass, we got through those moments and we got through the week. And at the end of the week, I headed home. Once again, over the blues. But this time, as I reached the summit, I was think, feeling an incredible sense of both accomplishment and relief. Because I knew, both literally and figuratively, from here on out, it was downhill all the way. And as I cruised on home, I was figuring, I'm ready for more road trips. But better than that, I think I'm ready for all sorts of adventures, including those that may or may not involve things which I may or may not have under control. Thank you. Bonnie Vestal. So I grew up in a blue collar family and my parents always told us, be your best. Up until 12th grade, I went to Catholic school and the sisters always said, you can be anything you want, just be of service. There must be more than that, I thought. What about adventure and excitement and passion, risk? Give me a bigger life. My wish came true in the form of my marriage, and it started off with a fairy tale wedding, but not in the usual sense. Instead of coming awake, the bride fell under a spell, and it went something like this. It was a warm, sunny Saturday morning in Palo Alto in 1968, only I was a wreck. Instead of my usual calm, collected, capable self, she had been hijacked. Somebody else was there with a pounding heart and sweaty palms and a dry mouth and a brain that wouldn't work. So I turned to my sister with time running out and said, you have to help me. Just go downtown and get me something, anything to calm me down. She was back in a few minutes with a little blue bottle of something called Quiet World. I have no idea what was in there. But I tumbled out a few, a few of those tiny blue tablets, swallowed them, and got through the day. Who, who, what sane person in their right mind with any reasonable intelligence would do a thing like that? Well, I'll tell you, somebody desperate to run away. That's what, I didn't do that, I stayed. Punched my ticket, got on for the ride, and joined my husband to finish medical school. 
We were in San Francisco in the late 60s. We were about three blocks from Haight-Ashbury, but we had no idea what was going on over there because we were in the library studying. After that, we spent 10 years crisscrossing the country for our internship, residency, and fellowship, and we started our family during those years. In Denver, what saved me was the Rocky Mountains. I could see them from the hospital window out over the western horizon there, evergreen in the summer and punched with color when the aspens turn gold in the fall and covered with white in the winter. And he got me into hiking boots and onto snowshoes and cross-country skis. And whenever we were outside, everything was fine. In Baltimore, it was my pregnancy, or to be more accurate, the complications brought on by sleep deprivation and overwork. My three weeks of enforced bed rest brought me a nice settled stomach, stronger bones, and a good relationship with the baby. He was born early, just in time for us to move to Nashville, and that's when our daughter dropped in. She arrived very harmoniously and, and well-timed between Friday afternoon clinic and Monday morning rounds. I barely missed a beat. Our family was complete, we got in the car again and drove on out to Boise. From the Broadway exit up there on I-84, this place looked like paradise and felt like home. It was summer, it was 1977, the town was leafy green, the river was clear, the foothills were close, and for the next 20 years, it was our dining room table that kept me sane. It was the family hub, it was the launching pad and the landing zone for every one of our days, and it was the gathering place for all of us at night in the evening. But throughout this whole journey, he was the one that kept me on the tracks. Time after time after time, he talked me out of quitting. Every time I continued on, I became stronger and more resilient a bigger and braver and better version of myself, just like I had wished for way back in the beginning, but something was off. I didn't feel proud, I didn't feel accomplished. I felt empty and hollow and depleted. While I was running out of gas, he was picking up steam. When I wanted less and needed less, he wanted more. It took everything I had to gather all that I had gained during all that time to face what I already knew. The ride was over. It was time to get off. When I look back now, I have to smile. He gave me his hand to help me out of my too small life. And then he gave me a too big life to grow me into somebody who could stand alone. And for that, I'll always be thankful. Thank you. So, please welcome Bonnie Erickson. When my late husband Brandon and I, oh, Mike, can you hear that? Okay. Can you hear that? Okay. Please. 
Okay. Well, when my late husband Brandon and I first started dating, um, it was a really, really big deal when he decided it was time for me to meet his family. You see, Brandon practiced what he called intentional dating. And what this means is that he had somehow made it to his late 20s without having ever dated anyone because you don't date unless you potentially see that person as a spouse. And so no pressure at all on me when he wants me to meet the family. They've never met any girl before. And what you also need to know about his family is he comes from a very long line of farmers, ranchers, and rodeo people. And what you probably already know about me, if you know me, is that I am a literal runaway train, action-packed with social faux pas. And so, uh, so we head to where this branch of the family live in Montevue, Idaho. And I'm sure you don't know where that is, so I'm going to help. It's right by Mud Lake, Idaho. <laughs> so we get there, and we go inside the house at Aunt Hazel's, where the women are all gathered. And um, I proceed to do some of my best work. I had actually brought a brand new puppy with me, because that makes sense. And the puppy immediately peed on her newly carpeted kitchen. <laughs> Carpeted kitchen. We'll get to that uh, someday. Um, so anyway, so they they uh, probably are sick of me, and so they send us out to go meet the men who are out in the field uh, cutting hay. And so we go out there, and they're on the tractor cutting hay. And I actually remember that meeting them going pretty well. And they had to rush off and go to the next field. And um, Brandon and I had actually ridden. He I rode a four wheeler, and he rode a dirt bike to get out to the field. And um, and so when the guys went off on the, uh, the, on the tractor to the next field, I said, I want to ride that dirt bike. And I had actually ridden street bikes for some time, and I thought, what could possibly be the difference between a street bike and a dirt bike? Um, I found out there's a lot of difference. That thing was pretty squirrely, but I thought I could do it. So I get on the dirt bike, and we're cruising around the field, and I get up to the edge of the field where I can't get the bike straight on with the ruts that those sprinklers make. And so I just decide what any sane person would decide is that more power, more better. And so I just full on throttle at an angle with the rut. And I'm guessing what happened is I gave it full throttle, lit off as I came out of that rut, the front wheel dug in, the back wheel came up, and I went sailing over those handlebars. And um, I always thought that if, you, if I was ever in a motorcycle accident, that it would be like this slow motion thing where you're all kinds of limbs flying through the air and you actually get to pick how you land. I would not have picked how I landed. So I'm sailing through the air and I landed in that freshly cut hay on my face first, just go, 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 go through the hay. And my feet landed sometimes later. And Brandon says when I looked up, there was just so much blood, he thought I actually lost an eye. I thought I had lost all my teeth because my mouth was completely full of rocks. So he throws me on the back of the four-wheeler. We race off to where he has his car parked at the house. And um, it's at that moment I remember I'm in Montevue, and I'm probably about to get stitched up by a vet. I learned later that that was actually a possibility. Um, instead, we ended up at a little country clinic where the doctor had just left for home in Rexburg an hour away. Um, and so the nurses came out, they were ever so helpful to tell me that, oh honey, they're probably going to have to re-break that. I had not seen my face, Brandon would not let me see my face. So we raced off to Rexburg to go to the hospital where we came to the parking lot and it is, I'm seeing the redneck episode of ER is happening <laughs> in the parking lot. There is a guy absolutely covered in blood, it's obvious it's not his blood, he's just talking on the cell phone. 
They put me in a wheelchair as per hospital policy, put, uh, take me into the lobby where I encounter more injuries that could only happen in this neck of the woods. And they wheel me into the room where I'm going to share, which I'm gonna share with the guy that belongs to the blood out in the parking lot. Apparently he had reached over his buddy as he was taking down a tree. The guy lifted up the chainsaw. And this guy looks at me, who I've still not, I still haven't seen my face, and says to me, oh honey, are you gonna be okay? I'm like, you're asking me that. Um, in all fairness, I will say, I was road rash from here to here, my face was split open, broken nose, um, but there's a silver lining that I can now write the book on how to win over farm folk in central Idaho. All you have to do is jack yourself up, don't go home crying to mama, and endure some pretty serious nicknames. My personal favorite, Captain Crash. Please welcome Steve Smith. The plan was to simply spend the night at Clint's house on the trampoline. We were fourth grade innocent church boy going boys. What I didn't know but what I kind of knew, but what I didn't want to admit that I knew, was that Clint had rigged the stage door connected to the cafeteria with a piece of cardboard and some tape. And he also convinced all of us to bring toilet paper. His house conveniently sat on the edge of the school grounds, right at the edge of the field. And from his trampoline, it was a one-way track all the way through the field, up the ramp, and then to the left of the cafeteria. We waited for his parents' lights to turn off, and then still in our ninja clothing underneath our sleeping bags, we jumped over the fence and made a trek on over to the cafeteria, got in with a cinch, and then we just started the toilet paper like crazy. We threw it over the rafters, over the tables, around the piano. We threw it and wrapped it around the screen, the very screen that we used when we watched The Grinch during the rainy days. We wrapped it around the projectors, the bathroom stalls. There was toilet paper everywhere. It was incredible and gonna be the best prank ever done, probably only done at that elementary school. And then Scott came into the bathroom and what he did startled me. He threw something against the mirror and it made a splat. He had discovered that if you wet a glob of toilet paper, it <laughs> sticks like glue. This was revolutionary to us because we had toilet papered many houses, but we never dealt with it wet. Maybe the people after in the morning after did, but we did not. And this was amazing. It was like art. We threw it everywhere. We made stalactites and stalagmites all on the ground, on the piano, on the screen. And then Clint, and this is where I kind of felt like we weren't conducting ourselves that well. He took his elbow and he broke off the soap dispenser took it upside down and poured soap all over the ground. And then he grabbed the soap dispenser from the girls' bathroom and turned that upside down and dripped it all into the projectors. Five movie projectors. My dad worked for Kodiak, but it didn't take that for me to know that that was a wrong thing to do. By then, I was feeling pretty guilty for what we were doing, but I couldn't stop. We were caught up in the moment. And my friend Scott said, come over here. And we grabbed some lost and found coats and we started to stuff them in the toilets. Stuff and flush and stuff and flush and stuff and flush and stuff and flush. And then we grabbed what we thought were girl looking uh, lost and found coats. And this was our only pause of the night. We didn't want to go into the girl's bathroom. 
But we did, and we put the girls' coats in the toilets in the girls' bathroom, stuffed them flush. What was supposed to be a 30-minute prank turned into a two-and-a-half-hour horrific vandalistic act, and we left the cafeteria feeling pretty, I don't know, nervous energy. I remember running back kind of thinking, yeah, we did good, right? Yeah, I think so. Scott forgot his jacket. We had to go back, and his name was in it. Somehow we got back in. We got the jacket, and there was a spotlight just like that one down one of the corridors. I heard keys, and I swear I saw steam coming out of this person's nose. So my floodgates open. I start bawling. I run down the corridor along with my friends, and perpendicular is another corridor and another spotlight. And this one is screaming, stop, kids. This is the law. I hear the keys, I hear the whistle, and we head down that ramp, that track. I derail off into an alcove near the bathroom, and my friends head down, and I hear the boots and keys run by me. When I knew the coast was clear as best I could, I headed over to Clint's house. I leaped his fence. His Scottish terrier that was shaved before we left all of a sudden seemed fuzzy, and I realized I thought I was at the wrong house, but it was my tears and was skewing my view. I knew in that moment, what I had to do. I didn't want to do it, but I knew it was the right thing to do. So I opened the sliding glass door, and what felt like tar on my shoes, I walked up each of those steps and knocked on Mr. and Mrs. Clint's door, and I said, Mr. and Mrs. Clint, I think we're in a lot of trouble. And he said, oh, It's Ruth Schwartz. Portland, Oregon is the home of the World Naked Bike Ride. 15,000 people show up for this event every year, and I'm there with 30 Idahoans who have convinced me that it's a really great idea to ride naked on a bike through the streets of Portland. <laughs> and it starts out pretty good, but it's a downhill descent as that day goes on. Not enough sleep, cat corralling, a lot of drama, fight with the boyfriend. By the time this event happens at dusk, I'm flatlined. But this train's rolling, so off we go. We do not finish this ride until midnight. Great, it's time to go back to the hotel, right? No, 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 my posse wants to start drinking. Okay, so we find a pub in downtown Portland. Now, if any of you are curious, yeah, we're naked. So we drink till about 1.30 a.m. Then it's, okay, let's go back to the hotel. Yeah, finally, let's go freaking back to the hotel now. One friend goes out to start unlocking bikes. He puts down his phone and his wallet on the pavement next to him. We're from Idaho. Nothing ever happens in Idaho. So we're pretty surprised when we cannot find the phone and the wallet. They're gone. They're really gone. So after we really determine that this is happening, how long is this going to take? He gets on another person's phone and starts canceling credit cards. Great, how long is that gonna take? 
But one of us, who is an infamous Idaho engineer, says, you know, with the help of an app and the phone number, I can GPS track this phone. So we mill around for 30 minutes, and then he's got it. He looks at his phone, he says, I've got a location. Okay, let's go freaking deal with this. Five of us jump on bikes. We're like hell loose through the streets of downtown Portland. We find ourselves in a homeless encampment. He's got his, he's got his phone, he points at a tent, and he says, there, the phone's in there. And right then, this young woman with a hoodie over her head pops out of the tent, starts booking it down the road. Oh no, uh-uh, no, this is going on no longer. I turn around on foot, I'm after her. Give me the freaking phone. Give me the freaking phone! Two of us on bikes, they come up, they trap her. She turns around to face me. I look in her face, she does not have this phone. So I turn back, 10 flaps again. I turn back and I'm staring at this 10th flap in which I, in my exasperation, say, give me the freaking phone or I'm coming in there to get the freaking phone. <laughs> uh, I'm all, I know gritty streets, but really, I hear myself. I'm naked <laughs> on the street in downtown Portland in the middle of the night, yelling at a 10th flap, wondering if I'm really going in that tent. But then there's a voice, and the voice says, I don't have the phone. Give me the freaking phone, or I'm coming in there to get the freaking phone. And the tent flap opens up. Out pops the phone. I grab the phone. I turn back to my friends. I got the phone. I got the phone. And just as I turn back to the tent flap, the now famous Idaho engineer is rattling his bike chain at the tent flap, and he goes, and now, for the wallet. <laughs> Out pops the wallet. We grab the wallet, we get on our bikes, we're, woo, woo. we're heroes through the streets of Portland, Oregon to return these precious items. But really, I know there is no hero in this story. This is just one bad, cranky woman making this night come to an end already. And so I leave you with this thought to anybody who is a thief, watch out, because you might be dealing with a cranky woman, an engineer, and naked Idahoans on bicycles. Eric Scarsfo. Oh, boy! Yeah. I had to say that. Yes, I was, I was there for the 150th anniversary of the Golden Spike driving there at Promontory Point. Me and a half a million of my other friends were there. So yeah, in 1869, two railroads met east and west right here, not right here, but in front of me, you would say, with a special laurel wood tie from Sacramento with a pre-drilled hole and a special polished gold pure silver railroad spike inscribed on it the last spike and other dignitaries' names, etc. The spike was placed in the hole of that laurel wood tie and a silver-plated hammer, which we still have, the hammer and the spike. To this day, we do have that golden spike still. And that spike was, spike was tapped on the head by both the Union and the Central Pacific's presidents. And then all the dignitaries clapped, oh, good job, yes. And then the spike was pulled out, and it was wrapped up and put away in a vault on the train, never be seen again until this year. We got to see it at Salt Lake's Capitol Dome there. 
It was then, after that, the tie was removed and a regular uh, railroad tie was put in and a regular iron spike was taken out and wrapped a wire around the spike and they wrapped a wire around the hammer with the blow to the hammer. Simultaneously, this telegraph signal was sent out, setting off cannons facing the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean. Boom. Setting the world on notice that the transcontinental railroad had been completed and the United States was moving to the forefront of the world stage. After three swings and missing the spike. The spike driver, who had probably hit every spike and is all the way for miles, came over to the president and grabbed this hammer away from him, and with one blow, it was in. By that time, the telegrapher sitting next to the track on a table typing out a live broadcast via telegraph wire. Everybody was listening to the telegraph wire. What was going on? The prayer was said. He is, the dignitaries are speaking. He swings and he misses, and he swings and he misses. And, no. And so he, he, by the time he had swung the spike and he hit the spike, the guy had typed out, done. And that was it. The whole world knew, they would say, the Transcontinental Railroad had been completed. 1869, on May 10th, the United States came a little closer, not only with communication, but with, rail, with two iron rails. That was a dream of Abraham Lincoln in 1862. He knew that he needed to bind the country together because California and all the western new states were either deciding between slave or non-slave and they were so far away from the east coast that they could be their own country. California could probably still be their own country. Uh, 150 years later. Anyways, he finally, the dream was met in 1869 Unfortunately, he did not live to see that day, but his dream lived on. The railroad binded the nation together. The railroad would eventually, in 1887, bind the, railroad, bind the nation together again with a central time zone. Before that, we had 8,000 different time zones in the United States before the railroad incorporated all that. So thanks to the iron rails, our country is one. 100 years later, there was a reenactment ceremony at Promontory Point. With a, with a whole reenactment ceremony there. And, and 50 years later, we had the 150th anniversary. So the moon landing of 1869 was at Promontory. 100 years later, we go to the moon. And 50 years later, I have more technology on this phone than the Saturn V rocket had. So where we'll be in 2069? I will be back at Promontory Point. I'll be 70-something years old. I'll, I remember in 2019. Yes. I'll be there and I'm going to, you know. But when we were there, we got to partake in the reenactment ceremony. I was part of the 21st Infantry Division, Company K. They were the very first regiment to cross the country by rail. So happenstance that they were, they were on the train on the Union Pacific at Promontory Point on the day of the driving of the Golden Spike. So they got out their dress blues, they put on the white gloves, and they stood at attention. And the huge company, there's pictures of all of this, they stood right there. Uh, to, during the reenactment Sony, there was me and another five guys. We represented all of Company K for the first time ever in a reenactment ceremony because they do these every year on May 10th at Promontory Point. And we got to be there with the governor and, the, and all the big heads of Washington came out, the Homeland Security, all that guy came out and it was huge to do. Bus after bus load came out. Like I said, over half a million people. It was just like it was in 1869. The sun, it was 70 degrees in the shade. It was reported it was 70 degrees in the shade. It was a beautiful day, the sun was shining, the, I, the weather was identical. It was just like 1869, including the chopper flying over, videoing all of this. 
So it was a memorable experience when everybody was yakking and talking, you know, this is a great day, and the speeches were made. Our group got to go behind the 119, the Union Pacific's steam locomotive, that is a full recreation. Both those engines on the Union and Central are full replicas of the original locomotives. Each of the original locomotives, unfortunately, by 1940s, were sold for scrap for $1,000 a piece. But you wouldn't recognize the engines by that. But anyways, we got a, a close-up view. We got to camp as it was in 1869. So not only did I reenact standing there, but I was fully dressed from head to toe of an 1869 soldier was. And we camped in a canvas tent on the ground. We ate, we cooked, we, so the night before, the day of, and that night was lived as 1869. So it was a really moving experience for a railroad buff, you know, and all that. So I'd like to thank you all for coming. I'll turn it back over. Thank you for coming to the Boise Depot, Parks and Rec, supporting them. Thank you for listening. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari and featuring live music from the Lonesome Jetboat Ramblers. This project is supported by public funding for the arts through the Idaho Commission on the Arts, the Idaho Legislature, and the National Endowment for the Arts. We also receive support from the Boise City Department of Arts and History. Thank you to the Slammer of the Year media sponsors, Radio Boise and Boise State Public Radio. Support this storied program, find upcoming shows, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. To become a storyteller, send an email to story at storystorynight.org. Take me back to Tulsa.